You both know how to kill. But here you must take a life. There will be no machines to make the act unreal. You must touch the life you take. And welcome to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast. I'm Dave. I'm Richard. And this is episode 8, where we will be discussing Jewel. Mm. Written by Terry Nation, directed by Douglas Campfield. The one and only. The one and only episode. We'll be talking a lot about him this episode, I reckon. The ratings were a slight increase this week. It was an even 10 million. Right. So, as we said last week, they're settling around that, that sort of 9 to 11 patch, and it's right in the middle of that this week. So, Jewel middle of the compilation tape, which was, of course, named Jewel. (laughs) What did you make of this one, Richard? I really enjoyed this. It's really entertaining. At times, it's actually quite tense and quite gripping. Look, I guess if you want to be a bit picky, you can say it's probably a bit of style over substance because it's not really a, what you'd call a very detailed or involved script. I agree. I really enjoyed it. It is great to watch. It is very tense in places. It became very evident to me watching it again this time that it is more than anything a number of very cool set pieces Mm. that are in some ways quite loosely linked. I'm going to put it to you, Richard. We both enjoyed it. We're not knocking it. But you you said style over substance. How much of this episode's reputation is simply down to the direction? Well, that is one of the notes I had, which was props to Douglas Canfield for turning what could have been, I, I think, a fairly standard episode. Uh, with with some other directors into something that is quite special. I mean, look, we'll obviously talk about individual moments when we go through, but particularly one to immediately call out is is where they're having the space battle. There's no model work. It's shot from the perspective of the characters on each of the bridges of each of the ships. But that is really tense. Yeah, it is very well done. And I think we'll also be highlighting particularly both the direction and the setting for the outdoors stuff. Mm. Because I think it's actually not until Blake in another, what, 44 episodes or something, that we get... Another forest. Another forest. Or, you know, OB that good. No, that's true. Uh, Before we go on, we should touch on one important point, which is something of an antecedent to this, you might say. Yes. Or or you could say a complete rip-off. A a homage. homage. (laughs) And that is the classic Star Trek episode, Arena. Yes, which I did, and I'm guessing you probably did too. I did make a point of watching prior to this. Uh, Yes, so for those who aren't aware, Arena is an episode of the first series of Star Mm -hmm. Trek, which was broadcast in the US in 1966. It was broadcast in the UK for the first time on the 15th of November 1969. Right. So it had well and truly been out and repeated a few times, I think, by then. And Mm. uh, We we know from our work on the Goodies Pirate podcast just how in the zeitgeist... Yeah. Original Trek was in was by that point, yes. The plot is all about Kirk realising that one of their Earth colonies has been wiped out. Mm -hmm. He goes to chase down the enemy ship, and suddenly the two ships are slowed down. The two captains are taken down to fight on behalf of their crew and to learn a lesson about violence. Yes. And there are even scenes where they stop on board the Enterprise to try and work out how everything's working. (laughs) I love Black 7, but you cannot escape there are some very big similarities. Oh, indeed. But, as I said, we'll call it a homage. No, and look, if you're going to steal steal from the best, Arena's a really cool episode. Mm. It's a very famous one where Kirk fights the Gorn at Vasquez Rocks. And I have been to Vasquez Rocks (laughs) and seen the locations. I was about to say, even if the thing about him making the gunpowder was apparently debunked on Mythbusters, I believe. But, hey, I actually really enjoyed watching that episode, I got to say. (laughs) One thing we should also mention while we're discussing Arena and the potential influences is that it is acknowledged that Arena was likely based on or influenced by a 1944 short story called Arena, which was written by Frederick Brown. But we're not doing a Star Trek podcast. The other final point I want to make before we move into our more focused discussion is, of course, this is the second Travis episode. Mm. So this is the point, I guess, at which for viewers watching at the time, you go, okay, he definitely is a recurring character. He's back. 
Notably, though, Servalon isn't back. So I wonder if people watching at the time thought, well, okay, she's introduced Travis and sent him on his mission. Now it's just Blake and Travis, and not knowing that she was going to be back. Well, I guess that in some ways was the original intention, that she would be the person Travis obviously reported to. I think the original plan was that she would be a minor character who appeared occasionally to either give him new orders or, you know, berate him for not succeeding. And I suppose the fact here that we only see Travis, it does reinforce that idea that he is out to seek, locate and destroy Blake. I took the impression from this maybe a little bit of time has passed since what we saw in Cyclocate Destroy Mission to Destiny. They've obviously been out running the patrols. Travis, and in keeping with his strategy that we see in Cyclocate Destroy, he anticipates where Blake is going to be. He's obviously monitoring perhaps where the other patrols must have pushed him. And he makes sure he gets there first so he can catch Blake flat-footed. You really do get the impression that this is part of a quite a grand strategy. Mm. That Travis, as you say, has, has worked out where to put the patrols, how to guide the Liberator into a particular yep. area and set a trap for him there. Mm. And, and yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that. So it opens in a very unusual way because it actually opens on the alien planet, mm. which the Liberator still isn't anywhere near at that point. It's cold, it's dark, it's wind-swept. Yep. It's very evocative. Lots of thunder and lightning. Yeah. yeah. And then to make it even more evocative, you get this lovely slow, gentle shot of the Liberator model with, let's say it, it's music that's not Dudley Simpson. No, indeed. And we probably will talk about that a bit later. This is one of only two episodes that Dudley Simpson didn't do. But I actually think the stock music choices in this are great. Yeah, they're really, really good. They are, however, stylistically so different from everything mm, that comes before true. or after. I think you do notice it reasonably here, particularly, as I said, with those model shots of the Liberator with the stock music. I mentioned before this was on the second compilation tape and it was the middle segment. It felt really out of place in that compilation between Cyclocate Destroy and Project Avalon. And I don't think the cuts really helped either because that whole first scene where you just see the aliens on the planet looking up at the three lights that represent the pursuit ships is cut. Yeah, there's a lot of the explanation stuff is mm. cut there, yes. Yeah. Speaking of that opening scene, we are introduced to the characters of Sinifar and Giroc mm-hmm. who do a little bit of explanation to each other so that we can set up what's going on here. They talk in very mysterious terms about they are in control of the power and they must dissipate the power by restoring the balance. And we are the chosen ones. I never wanted to be the keeper, you know that, Sinifer. Nor I the guardian. You could set us both free. If I controlled the power, that's what I'd do. You know that isn't possible. We must dissipate the power by restoring the balance. Then you and I can be at peace. First, we must atone. Why us? We were chosen. This is the move into more fantasy-oriented sci-fi. I mean, there's a lot of talk here without any real explanation as to exactly who they are, what the power is, why they're the ones possessing it, etc. For anyone who owns or has read the Liberation book by Alan Stevens and Fiona Moore, there is a discussion of some of the symbolism and that in there in, in their entry on Duel. I encourage you to check out. Mm. We obviously get the idea that they are mysterious, powerful beings and that they have seen these ships believe they're going to start fighting and obviously they are going to do something about it. Yes, we are very much here into the realm of Clark's Law uh, in that, for, yes. for, for those who aren't aware, that, that concept that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Now, we don't have magic in the Black 7 universe, but essentially here we do have magic, but because it is from an advanced and mysterious civilization, it can be hand-waved away as technology we don't understand. And, I mean, look, the Trek episode that this uh, borrows from, <laughs> the aliens there, the Metrons, do exactly the same thing. They are able to freeze the ships in space and they want them to learn their lesson. Yes, and in thousands of years you may be up to our level. Mm. And that's it, that's the hand wave away. Their technology is too advanced for us, so it's magic. Yes. Hidden as tech. Yep. I mean, let's face it, Trek did that a lot, but well, classic Trek particularly. Even something like Babylon 5, the Vorlons, for example. Yes, it's exactly true. the same principle. But we very quickly then get into the actual jewel, mm. so to speak. Once we've seen the Liberator, we then cut to our first look at the Federation Pursuit Ships. Yes, which is the first time we've seen the models. Uh, presumably the Starburst class that Travis was after. That's right, and there are three of them. They are very, very cool models. Mm. I mean, they look like a very logical and reasonable extrapolation of what a fighter plane would look like in space. Yes. We cut to Travis. He's there with two mutoids. Again, yes. 
mentioned before, but first time we see them. Mm. Again, we have that little bit of exposition disguised as Dyer, lots of, as you well know. Yes, to set up exactly the fact. And really the salient point obviously being that had some form of treatment or something done to them and now they need blood serum to operate. Yes, they need blood serum to operate. Did, did you get that? Because if not, they'll mention it a couple of times. They need blood serum to operate. <laughs> and there are opponents to butoid modification. Yes, because they need blood serum. They need that to operate. <laughs> It is laboured a little bit of the episode. Uh, just a bit. <laughs> the pursuit ships are waiting for Blake. Mm-hmm. Travis's strategy is there. And again, he's very, very cautious. He moves behind the planet so the Liberator can't see him. He's waiting to observe what they're doing. And actually allows a certain amount of time for all that to happen. Yeah. Now, we'll talk about the journeys down onto the planet sort of in one block. Yeah. I, I want to focus on the space battle now. Yeah. Well, and you notice everything he does, even when they move in, it's to keep the planet between them and the ship for as long as possible. He uses random pulse emissions. Well, presumably so the Liberator detectors won't pick up it's a, it's the signature of a starship. Now, do you think it was a deliberate move on Travis's part to catch the Liberator at the end of a long chase so that its power would be low? Because as we discussed two episodes ago, after Kelly was interrogated in Seek, Locate, Destroy... Mm. Travis now would have an idea of the Liberator's capacities and its limitations. Yes. So he would know that in a straight fight between a fully powered Liberator and a pursuit ship, he's got no chance. No, that's right. But he would also know that if they've been chased for a certain number of hours or a certain distance, their power would be low. Yes. So so is he deliberately trying to even the odds? Um, He seems to make the realisation that they're low on power when he realises that the Liberator isn't immediately about to try and take off. I think his initial plan seems to be to try and sneak up on them as much as he can, flank them, and so that any path the ship takes is going to put them in the firing line of one or more of the ships so he can just bombard them. And again, we will see a scenario a bit like that later in the series. Because now he knows the ship is low on power, well, immediately it's just, okay, well, all we have to do is just bleed their energy banks dry and they're helpless. Yeah, and you see Travis's utter ruthlessness in that, in mm. that he's absolutely prepared for at least one, if not both, of the other pursuit ships to basically drain their power banks banks to nothing and be floating in space. If it means that at the end of that, the Liberator is also down to nothing and he's still got a fully powered... Yeah, that's right. They are utterly expendable. They are. Interestingly, we now get to see Blake as the tactician. We've seen that a bit in the past, but this is where it really becomes overt. Probably the other thing, when they discover the Pursuit ships are on top of them, clearly the Liberator hasn't picked the ships up and Zen actually makes the point that, well, I can't really help you because the battle computers weren't online, and now they are, well, you don't have any chance at all. Yeah, it's something very overt in Blake 7, and, and I think sci-fi of the time, that a battle computer was a very separate part that you had to turn on. The concept that we have now of different systems and programs mm. operating in the background doesn't exist. If you want the battle computer, you go turn it on. That's right. And whether that's partly how the Federation are able to get on top of them because they're not doing as, as mm. detailed a scan or something perhaps. But yeah, there is a very definite note there that you know Zen sort of does that, well, if you turn the battle computers on earlier, I might have been able to help you. <laughs> so we're now down to basically Blake's tactics. Yes. And we see here that he is very, very careful about how he uses the Force Wall, for example. Mm. So he knows that Travis wants to drain his power and he's very careful about how that happens. And he also knows that if they run, they'll use their power out very, very quickly. Mm. The direction here is really, really good. Like This is where the direction really starts to show off. It does. And I have to say, during this space battle, Gareth Thomas is really, really getting into this. Yeah, it's very, very well shot and very, very well, well acted. And you get the feeling that Gareth Thomas worked well with Camfield and they, mm. they, they were working out what each other was trying to do. Now, we get the moment where Blake stops to explain his strategy. Now, I accept that he probably has to tell the crew what his plan is so they can execute it, but did you find it just a little bit forced? Perhaps. Whether it's maybe just the setting up for the audience what's about to happen, so they get the idea that the Liberator has been surrounded and their options are limited and that's how we're going to get out of this. I, I'm not sure. The unkind thing to say is, well, it wastes another couple of minutes of screen time. So <laughs> if the episode was under running, but... Yeah, but it is a very clever strategy that he comes up with. He says, right, the first pursuit ship has been doing a little firing. They're basically yep. neutered. So at that point, it's two to one. Yep. If they can ram and take out the other ship, particularly the one that Travis is on, it'll down... Yes. One-to-one, and Travis won't be there. Yes, well, he works out, yes, which ship must be Travis, and then that's the one we're going to try and ram. Yes. Now, they go forward and do that. The model work here, again, is excellent. We we just need to call that out again, because Mm. it's really well done. 
the effect of time slowing down again is very well done having zen do that countdown in the background yep. particularly helps to convey that yeah the cutting between also helps to convey that with the model work now it's not quite clear are we meant to assume that the liberator actually is starting to go into the pursuit ship because it sort of goes behind you can't quite see whether it's going in or not i sort of read it it's actually stopped at the moment of impact right because they talk about they're going to take the hit on the lower hull so it's sort of down and off to one side basically i think where the impact point is going to be fair enough look we've said it a couple of times now this is possibly the highlight of the episode oh i think so and very very well done Mm. So we've talked about what's happening in space. Let's talk about what's happening on the planet because they actually go down to the planet several times. They do. The first time is a very quick little interlude, a large part of which was cut out of the compilation tape. Yes, it was. So Blake, Jenna and Gang go down very much just to stretch their legs. They make the sort of half joke that they want to get away from Avon and Villa bickering. But again, it does imply as well that they have been on the Liberator for quite a while. Yes. They get down and it's a very uh, post-apocalyptic... Terry Nation planet. <laughs> there's lots of references to the surface rock being melted, the vegetation being petrified. Yes. There's nothing alive. And then they cut to the memorials, which are, we don't know what they are, but it's implied as sort of memorial to war and or peace and yes. or defeat. And that's a very evocative little model shot, particularly where the, the lightning flashes and you see that plane. There's the endless line of graves. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's very, very effective. We then see the two mysterious women watching. Well, Gan sees them. Yes, and of course they're gone when the others turn round, which he puts down to the fact that his limiter might be malfunctioning. Yes, he does, and the way that David Jackson plays it implies that Gan is actually feeling something from his limiter, mm. which is a note to uh, keep for a couple of... Yes, let's just time. hold that thought. It's another thought to hold. They go back up, they have the space battle, and then... During the space battle, as things start to go a bit weird and mysterious, we realise that it's Sinifar who's doing it. Yes. Although Jirok obviously has some power, the main source of the power there seems to be Sinifar. Yes, who is identified as being the Guardian, and Jirok is the Keeper. So what's interesting that I really like at this point is that after Blake and Travis are brought down to the planet, the moment they're unfrozen by Sinifar mm. and Travis sees Blake, there's none of this... Well, the episode isn't finished yet, so I better not kill you. It's just, I'm going to raise my blaster and kill you. It is. And it shows his single-mindedness and his obsession with the death of Blake. There's no even where am I or what's going on or anything. It's just, Blake! And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And you know, he's a more believable character for doing that. It's not just the villain, oh, well, I need an excuse not to fire the, the, the hero now. For, for, for another 28 minutes or whatever. Yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> Fortunately for us, though, his uh, blaster doesn't work, so we get another 28 minutes. <laughs> Otherwise, it would be a much shorter episode and series. Yes. Before they're unfrozen, of course, we have the moment where Xerox starts to explain to the crew left on the ships part of at least what's going on. Uh, Yes, we do. As the explanations flow, it's interesting. Travis is shown to be the angrier of the two, but Blake is not shown to be the good guy or the righteous guy. No, Travis maintains he's... Very aggressive. He tries to show he's in control. He threatens them. You know, I'm a Federation officer. You do anything to me and you'll bring the might of the Federation down on top of you, etc. And even though it's shown to be futile, he maintains that attitude all the way through. Whereas it feels almost like Blake does the assessment. Once he realises he's in no immediate danger, he actually then relaxes and starts cracking jokes. Yeah, and I like the way that Travis doesn't rise to the bait either. He just is actually quite dismissive of Blake. Oh, that's very amusing, Blake, for a dead man. But again, and you know, we're not going to mention Arena all the way through this, I promise. No. But, but again, the very broad thrust of the Arena episode is that Kirk realises at some point that he could be equally as in the wrong as the Gorn. Yes. And that is very similar sort of tone to this. As you said, Blake is very determined. I mean, he is pure. He admits that he is an enemy of the state when they start stating their grievances against each other. We then obviously then go into the explanation of why the Guardians have brought them there and what really they are about, which 
you can sort of tick some of the Terry Nation tropes off, as we alluded to a minute ago. It's yes. very Genesis of the Daleks, a thousand years of war, yes. radiation, the ultimate weapon being used, that sort of stuff. It's very Daleks and Genesis. It is. Another thing that it reminded me very much of as well, though, is the C.S. Lewis novel, The Magician's Nephew, because that has the backstory to Janus, the White Witch, where she talks about the civil war she had with her sister and how she learned you know, the the ultimate weapon or the spell, whatever it was, you know, the word that can defeat your enemies and yep. everything. And how, you know, at the very last moment when she was defeated and her sister stood before her victorious, mm. she uttered the word and destroyed the planet. Right. If you check out that chapter of The Magician's Nephew, it actually is very similar in tone to, to what they talk about here. That idea of victory being actually the destruction of everything, not just your enemies. Yes. Well, Travis really sort of grasped on it. Well, you won. That's really all that counts. And it doesn't matter how. It's the fact that you totally destroyed your enemy. Yes. As they point out now, we are a dead race. Yes, whereas Blake is very much more interested in the human cost. How did the war end? What happened to you afterwards? How many of you are there left? He does restate his resolve to destroy the Federation. So in some ways, you know, he probably hasn't learned very much out of this either. But No, and it's an example of Blake being able to justify violent acts that perhaps mm. aren't as easily justifiable as he thinks they are. And that is a theme that... We is, will come back to, yes. yes it, it's growing and we will come back to. We then reach, I guess, what is the point of the episode, the titular duel. Yes. Which is that they will have one person to fight to represent the battle. Yes. Travis's character here, look, he's not interested in their lessons or any of the hocus-pocus stuff they're going on with. It's really a case he is determined to kill Blake, and if this is his opportunity to kill Blake, let's go. Yes, and I do love that little exchange where... Blake's clearly working through the options here, and he says, we could agree not to fight, to which Travis simply replies, could we? <laughs> and, and Blake doesn't respond because he knows that that's actually not an option. No, we then get the moment about the lesson that they have to learn as well, and, and about the idea that killing people is easy maybe when you've got a gun, but when you've actually got to physically get up close to somebody and actually look someone in the eye as you end their life. Yes, which is... An interesting point because Travis very clearly doesn't care. No, it is all about Blake. The others are expendable. I mean, he even really is the point. He himself is expendable as long as Blake dies too. Exactly. The second lesson that Girok and Sinifar want them to learn is not just the death of the enemy, but the death of a friend. Yes, and as they say, how do you explain that to a man who hasn't got me? <laughs> it's a very um, Avengers Infinity War moment, actually. Very much so. Spoilers if you haven't seen that movie, but if you have, you'll know the moment we're referring to. Yes, exactly. But again, it reinforces that idea that Travis is quite happy to die too if it means he gets to kill Blake. It does raise the idea, though, and we did mention it in the talk on Cyclocate Destroy, what Travis would actually do when he does kill Blake. Because he is so single-minded and so obsessive about this desire to terminate Blake's life. Well, maybe he'll return to his planet, he'll sit down and he'll watch the sunset, and, and he'll smile. <laughs> Over a thankful universe. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> more spoilers. And, and I know this is an idea that's been raised with Travis before, that he is all about his duty and his involvement in the military. There is actually nothing to Travis other than those. No. And in that way, it is actually fitting that the mutoid is selected to be his, in inverted commas, friend, mm. because it is a part of the service and that is important to him. Yes, e even if she is ultimately expendable. Yes. What do you take away from the fact that it is Jenna specifically who is selected to be Blake's friend? The aliens clearly believe that her death would affect Blake more than any of the others. There is sort of that thing about whether there is really a, a relationship forming between them. I think that it is quite reasonable to say that more than anyone else in the Liberator crew, Blake and Jenna are friends. They're there because they actually like each other's company, as opposed to even Villa and Gan, who respect and admire Blake, are sort of forced to be there as part of his crew. They're not yes. there as his mate. And I know some commentators have picked up on the fact there are a couple of times in the series here, and particularly at the end of this episode, when they're talking about how beautiful Cinefar was, Jenna sort of gets a bit, you know, yes, yeah, she was, wasn't she? <laughs> Jealous sort of thing. Yeah, and the way that they talk when they're up the tree mm. could be construed as being a little bit flirtatious. Mm. 
But again, maybe that's us seeing more than there is. Well, it's interestingly enough, because there is a sort of production note to it, which is that it was hinted at several times, but of course, because this was family viewing, of course, you couldn't really do anything. I mean, I did have the point here that it's maybe Sally Nevette complaining that she's getting nothing to do, because that will lead to a script change next week. That's true as well. So we've mentioned earlier the location working here is really, really good. We're not on Planet Quarry. We're in a very nice woodland. So, of course, we do get another scene that was cut from the compilation tape. Yes, completely. Where, where they're initially transported into the forest. And Giroc, who is obviously quite delighted, really, in Travis's aggression and yes, hatred says, and viciousness. Yes, she says it reminds her of her own people. So she decides to interfere in the contest mm. and disorientate Blake such that Travis can basically jump him. Yes. And Travis yeah, knocks him down. They have a small struggle and he ends with a machete around Blake's throat. Yes, and he's about to slit Blake's throat. Uh, yes. And a quite chilling goodbye, Blake. Yes, and again, it's another moment that gives Travis a bit of credibility because you know, even though Blake is disorientated, he still does take him out. Interestingly enough, Travis has a moment where he could have attacked Blake from behind mm. and he says, hello, Blake, or something, and, and gets Blake to turn around and then hits him. I'm going to assume it's not chivalry. And, no. And my reading of it is that Travis needs Blake to know it was Travis who killed him. Yes. There is also the thing after he's knocked him down the first time, he says to him, oh, come on, Blake, you can do better than that and you don't want to die on your back. Come on, at least put up a struggle. Yeah. Of course, before Travis can gruesomely slit Blake's throat on a family <laughs> show, Sidifer interferes and chastises Jurok for, mm. for interfering and resets the contest. Now... There's some long, really well-done scenes here. We're not sort of going to go through in real time what, what happens here, but there's a few points to pull out. One is that very clearly Travis defaults to his strategy, which is to stop and to set a trap for Blake. And then draw them into it. Yes. Blake knows that Travis is going to do that, so actively works to avoid that at first. Mm. And come nightfall, they just all go up a tree and sleep yes, for a bit. But as Kelly says, that sort of war is best fought on the move. <laughs> And that's an important point because when Travis is ready to spring the trap and draw Blake into Mm. it, he does that by capturing Jenna and using her as bait. Yes. Now, the mutoid knocks Jenna out incredibly easily, so it's Mm. it's implied that mutoids have got... Certainly above human strength. Yes. And that kind of says to me that had Travis and the mutoid just decided to take the fight to Jenna and Blake, and and it really just came down to a... uh, a balance of force. A straight fight, yes. Yeah, they probably would have won. Indeed. You could probably make the point of when the mutoid actually finds and traps Jenna very easily. Yes, but, but again, that works for me because it implies that she has got these superhuman abilities. That's right. I was about to say, we then sort of get probably an example, perhaps, of Travis's obsession and whatever being his undoing. Mm. Because you have the moment... I mean, he initially, when he sends the mutoid out, he says, I don't care whether the companion's dead or alive. Just bring him back, but leave me, Blake. Now, of course, when the mutoid comes back, she's now low on serum because... Because she needs blood serum to survive. And indeed, the blood of the bat things that were around the tree was unsuitable. (laughs) She is about to, obviously, stick the needle in Jenna's jugular. Yeah, that is a really creepy scene as well. Mm. Camfield, again, just has that point of view shot of the mutoid pulling the syringe out from its wrist and just slowly moving towards Jenna... And, and then, Jenna, you know, pulling Jenna's head back to get at her neck. Yeah. yeah, it's not a rape scene per se, but mm. it is a, uh, a textural rape, if you like. You notice Travis then stops her, where really, if he'd allowed her to feed and recharge, so to speak, that really would have made the fight far more in their favour. It would, which brings us to the final point, which is that, obviously, Travis loses the fight, and does so because having set up this elaborate trap where mm. he's to lure Blake to a particular point and he's going to drop the... Recreational of, device on them. <laughs> drop the um, sharpened sticks onto it. Yes. And it fails because the mutoid takes several seconds to sort of limply hack away at this vine, meaning that Blake has enough time to get out of the way before Travis's trap falls on him. Yeah, which I sort of took to be showing that the mutoid is now running out of steam. Yeah, and as soon as you said that to me, as we were exchanging yeah. notes about this episode, I thought that is such an obvious and probably mm. correct explanation. I had never picked that up before, and you know, let's face it, we've watched these series many, many times and you know, in a lot of depth. So I think there just need to be something a little bit extra, just just to perhaps make it a little more implicit mm. that the mutant actually was now starting to not function. 
when they start fighting, Jenna now gets the upper hand on the mm. mutoid, and you do actually see the mutoid being knocked down and not getting up again. Yeah, now I always assume, I think you can sort of see Jenna has a kick to the chest. Yes. Which I assume actually smashed that blood serum thing, and they, they need blood serum to survive, so it, <laughs> it, it died. Now, of course, the culmination of this is that Blake does get the better of Travis. Yes, he has Travis prone. Yes, and has the opportunity to kill him, and of course, doesn't. No. So, if you want to be altruistic, you can say that Blake has learned the lesson that Cinefar and Jerick wanted him to do. If you want to be cynical, you could say he knows what it was they're looking for out mm. of him, and he knows how to manipulate them into what he wants. Yes. Uh, either way, it works. I do like, we're going to talk more in a moment about the crew on the Liberator, but I do like at that moment, Avon gets it. Yes, he does. He knows damn well Blake is not going to do it. No, and, and I think he knows why as well. And Because the, the rest of the crew are, go on, kill him, go on. Yeah, and again, it's an example we're seeing more and more of in the series of even if Blake and Avon are antagonistic towards each other, they actually do understand each other better than anyone else. Yes. We then move back to the Storm Planet for the final time, and Blake explains about why he didn't kill Travis, and they sort of praise him for learning the lesson they wanted him to learn, and... He then has his little line. Another reason why I didn't kill Travis. I would have enjoyed it. Perhaps there was nothing for you to learn. What's interesting is that Travis is completely dismissive of the whole thing. And Jurek makes comments that imply that Travis is ultimately going to be self-destructive. Yes. And she's not just talking about, well, he's a destructive person who will cause the death of others. He will be ultimately self-destructive. Yes. Like their people were. Indeed, because he knows no boundaries. That's right. But they have decided that having learned the appropriate lessons and Blake having spared Travis's life, everybody can go about their business. Yes, I guess we do do get the final thing with Travis and the mutoid where he's sort of like the broken doll basically Mm -hmm. on the ground. They say, well, we will resurrect her. And he says, well, why bother? Because I'm going to make sure she's terminated when we get out of here anyway. And he tells the mutoid that when we get back on the ship, you know, you're going to be court-martialed and they will probably dismiss you the service, which means you are going to cease to exist. And of course, the episode then ends with the final scene of Jirok walking away into the graveyard as Cinefar fades out. And Travis, of course, is left to resume the hunt for Blake. Yes, it's another really evocative, really lovingly crafted shot that Mm. Douglas Camford does for us to finish those scenes. So a few general points we need to go through. Let's go back on board the Liberator. One of the lovely little exchanges we have here is Avon and Villa just sort of teasing each other and needling each other. And it's really well shot because especially that bit at the end where Avon really makes a point of going in his personal space. He does. Giving him that bit of that grin. Yeah, Villa has to go past Avon and Avon very deliberately stands in his way and just gives him that sort of slightly aggressive grin to, to make Villa move around him. Yes, it's just another example of Avon ensuring that even if, for the moment... Blake, Blake is notionally Blake is in the charge. head rooster. Yes. He at least is number two rooster. Yes, that's yes. right. Interestingly, Kelly, although she doesn't get a lot to do on this occasion, she's stuck on the Liberator, this is one of the very rare, almost unique times where they actually give Kelly a chance to be that guerrilla warrior mm. that we, we talk about. She is allowed to be an expert on field tactics and how to fight a combat. Yes, that Blake is quartering the area and that that, that sort of battle is best fought on the move. Uh, yes, it's a very, very rare example of that. The other cast don't really have a lot to do, but we do get to see when they're sitting on the Liberator watching the fight. I mean, Gan's immediate thing, Gan wants to just do something. He wants to go and help. He's frustrated that they're stuck there. He also, again, reinforces... As I think we've mentioned, that he really believes in Blake and that Blake will resolve this situation and, and everything will be all right. Even when the other crew are sort of sitting there saying, well, this is never going to be any different for us. You know, Villa makes the point he's going to be a wanted man until the day he dies. Jenna says much the same when they're down on the planet. Is this now getting a bit too much for me? Yeah, and she has this wonderful line that the Federation has beaten all of us at least once, mm. which really puts things into perspective. These these are not the Star Wars heroes that have always come out victorious. No. 
the Federation has beaten them all at least once. And it reinforces the idea that these are people who are together by chance, but they also need each other, despite whatever differences in that they have. They can't separate because on their own they're vulnerable. And while they might not believe in Blake and what Blake is doing, they're stuck with him and with each other. That's right. Avon, by contrast, is very cool throughout all of this. We really see the pragmatic side of Avon come through in this. There's the scene at night where, well, look, what is the point of sitting here all night watching the view screen? Nothing's happening. Have you thought of another plan? Yes, I'm going to get some sleep. How can you sleep with all this happening? With all what happening? Blake is sitting up in a tree, Travis is sitting up in another tree. Unless they're planning to throw nuts at one another, I don't see much of a fight developing before it gets light. It is a case, well... It's not going to do me good to sit here, so I might as well go and get at least a couple of hours sleep. Yes. And then that contrast with Gan particularly, who, no, I need to be involved, I need to be supporting Blake. And Avon's like, well, you know, you can send your thoughts and prayers all you want, but I'm, I'm getting some sleep. We're stuck here. Yeah. We have to wait for this situation to resolve itself and nothing is happening. And Gan and Villa indeed sort of missed the point because they really call Avon out about him not caring, you know, he's mm. never involved. And then, of course, Avon gets, well, probably one of his more famous lines... You're never involved, are you, Avon? You ever cared for anyone? Except yourself. I have never understood why it should be necessary to become irrational in order to prove that you care. Or indeed, why it should be necessary to prove it at all. And really, Callie is the one who gets the meaning behind it. Was that an insult, or did I miss something? You missed something. The, the other one is Villa, we didn't mention. He is not particularly engaged in some ways in the scenario... For Villa, it's more about how this is going to affect his survival chances. Yes. If Blake loses, well, then what are they going to do? And if Blake wins, well, he's still a marked man. And one final point I want to make is that we now start to see what is becoming a bit of a Travis trope, and that is that he gets the last little soliloquy at the end. (laughs) He gets to monologue. He does. In this case, it's... Ready, Commander. Follow Blake's course. We can't match his speed. We don't have to, just match his course. You see, he made one fatal error. You should have killed me. But with that, we'll move on to our regular segments. Indeed. The first of which is our guest cast. Now, we've only really got three guest artists this week. We have. So we'll start with Cinefar, who's played by Isla Blair. Mm-hmm. Now, she was an extra in A Hard Day's Night in 1964. Yes, that's and right. And still acting today. Indeed which is quite a phenomenal career. It is, really. Genre credits include, she had a Doctor Who appearance, she was Isabella in The King's Demons, but we'll forgive her for that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But even recently, she's been in Law & Order UK, she was a recurring character in A Touch of Frost. The Mm. thing that I knew her from was The Final Cut. Oh, yes. Which is the third of the House of Cards trilogy, or the the UK House of Cards trilogy. Yes. She did 31 episodes of The Doctors in 1970-71. And she was in an episode of The Avengers way back. Funny thing happened on the way to the station in 1967. She is in a lot of well-known and well-remembered series. Of course, probably the link here is she's the wife of Julian Glover, who we'll meet in a few weeks. Yes. And indeed, another Doctor Who link. Their son is Jamie Glover, who played William Russell in the uh, Adventure in Space and Time, the anniversary thing they did about the Hartnell. Oh, there you go. Yes. She was apparently actually meant to play Julian Glover's wife in the Doctor Who, The City of Death. Oh, right. But whatever she was working on overran, so they had to recast. That's a shame. I mean, the, yeah. the woman who played the Countess Scarlet was good, but she would have done it very well as well. Yeah, well, there is actually in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Julian Glover has a part in that, and she actually plays his wife and is credited as Mrs. Glover oh. <laughs> in the credits. Uh, now, in the role of Giroc, we had Patsy Smart. She is possibly best known. I think she had a recurring role in Upstairs, Downstairs. Mm-hmm. And also Terry and June. But her big genre one is she's in Talons of Wing Chiang for Doctor <laughs> Who. She's actually credited as the ghoul. And she's the old lady who's watching the body being pulled out of the river and does that. It's a floater! <laughs> she's been in a lot of very cool stuff, actually. I just was looking through her credits. There's stuff like Minder, Alexi Sales, Stuff, uh, Filthy Rich and Catflap. Uh, again, she has been in a lot of well-known series. Yeah, going back to 1957. A lot of it, particularly obviously later in her career, she played a lot of sort of older lady roles. But she's in uh, The Prisoner, she's in The Avengers, probably her two big genre credits mm. but yeah she had a very long career and she's really good in this yeah she is it's really funny because she brings an energy to it that is in contrast to the physical body and it's really really mm. effective the mutoid is played by carol royal mm. 
Now, she did 45 episodes of The Cedar Tree, which we actually mentioned last episode. Yes, which was a soap opera about an aristocratic family. It was an ITV series. It was set in the 1930s, so it's sort of during that last great era of the, of the aristocratic family. Sort the of post-war. Indian summer. Yes. Yeah. It ended, I think, around the time, actually, she appeared in this. Yes. Yes. Now, Kate Coleridge, who was Levitt last week, also appeared in that one. She, again, has done... A lot of quite well-remembered series and quite a bit of stage work as well in there. Yeah, too. she had a recurring role in Ladies in Charge. And she also, interestingly, did multiple episodes in stuff like Heartbeat, Casualty, but not as a recurring role, as multiple roles. Yes. Oh, well, see, I think a lot of those sort of tend to churn through. I think she was a couple of different characters in The Bill. She was a couple of different yeah. characters in The Professionals. Yeah, she was that sort of an actress. Mm. Moving on to Liberated Database... We get a bit more technical stuff about the Liberator here. We know there are at least seven power banks. Mm-hmm. We know it takes 48 hours to recharge the ship completely. Yep. And we also sort of get a sense of you know how often using the force wall reduces those power yes. banks. Yes. The pursuit ships are introduced, including their plasma bolts, which, which is actually a really cool effect. <laughs> it is. And again, as we mentioned, it is the first time we actually see the pursuit ships on screen. And that model shot of the three pursuits moving towards the camera will reappear several times in the series. <laughs> it will. And as we mentioned earlier, we're also introduced to the mutoids. Yes. So it's never clearly said exactly what a mutoid is, whether it's a compulsory process, whether it's something you sort of do for the near dead or, or what. It could be perhaps a penalty, for example. Well, and again, spoilers. Well, we have seen clearly that the Federation have people that they wish to dispose of. So for some rule breakers or whatever, the ones that maybe they can't ship to Cygnus Alpha, they quietly take them away and make them mutoids or something. Yeah, there's a lovely little moment there where Travis is sort of almost teasing or goading the mutoid about her mm. previous identity. And she says she doesn't care about who she was in the past. It's a dead personality there is a lovely moment, though, and I don't know whether it's deliberate or not. I hope it's deliberate. Where Travis says, I know your name, it's, it's Kiera. And he says it very clearly with three mm. syllables. And he's obviously read that in a file. But when the mutant says it back, she pronounces it differently as Kira. Mm. Which perhaps implies that that memory is coming back and she's pronouncing it the way it was pronounced Maybe. in her life. It's interesting that Travis actually has gone to the trouble of finding out who she was in her previous existence. Oh, and do you reckon he does that with all the mutoids that... I think he would because it's, I think it's the sort of thing Travis would do to have all the information mm. and just to know that sort of thing. And But maybe there's, there's a certain sense of curiosity to him as well. Perhaps. And, you know, he does use it to sort of goad her later on. And again, it's something most commentators think pick up on. He is, though, disturbed by her real just complete lack of interest in who she was and her detachment about the idea that she used to be somebody else. Travis and the Mutoids, I mean, we've sort of mentioned it. Look, he says in Cyclocate Destroy he has an affinity with them, probably because, you know, he has a bit of a bionic rebuild or whatever. Yeah. Clearly, they are utterly obedient, which would appeal to somebody like Travis. They're not going to question his orders. They're entirely focused on the service. Yes, and indeed they are. He can cast them aside when they're done. It doesn't matter if they're killed. To, to the point that, and I guess tying together the stuff that we've spoken about in the episode, it is implicitly stated that if... A mutoid leaves the service, it ceases mm. to function. Yes. And from that, you can take as well that if Travis were to leave the service, he would, in effect, cease to function. Yes, because well. he has no life outside the uniform. Yeah. So he's actually more like them than it's, mm. it's clearly stated. Our next segment is, look, it was the 1970s. And I just wanted to make a couple of comments on the background to this, because this is very mm. much a story that hinges on that sort of Cold War nuclear destruction mm. Mentality. Now, we look back now at the Cold War as sort of being one fairly homogenous thing from you know, 1945-ish to 1990-ish. But we were really at the time that Blake 7 was occurring in this point where it actually looked for a time as though the Cold War could be starting to thaw. In May of 1972, Nixon and Brezhnev signed the SALT-1 Treaty, mm-hmm. the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks Treaty. And that is sort of the signal of this ongoing detente between the Soviet Union and the US. That goes further with Ford and Brezhnev in 1974, where they set down the framework for what's going to be SALT II. Yep. Now, SALT II isn't actually signed by Carter and Brezhnev until 1979, so a little bit after this episode. But you are in that period there where the two protagonists of the Cold War are actually talking de-escalation. Yep. Now, now come the invasion of Afghanistan in 1980, it'll heat up again, <laughs> and then we go into the Reagan stuff and the Gorbachev stuff. But... This was a point where it 
perhaps did feel more like a possible turning point in the Cold War. And so you see, as you said, Genesis of the Daleks in, yep. is an example. In 1975, you, you get this sort of theme of, you know, looking at alternative paths. Yep. I, I think really comes through. And that really feels this in this episode. And I also need to mention the terrible space bats <laughs> that are a very bad 1970s prop. Oh, I didn't think it was that bad. I mean, oh, for, they're what, terrible. For, for what it has to do, it's... <laughs> no, they're terrible. <laughs> I didn't think they were that bad, but all right, that's fine. Well, now, of course, we move on to probably our lighter segments, the first one of which is Gan Watch. Now, Gan actually gets a little bit to do this week. He actually gets to go down to the planet, mm. and he's the one who spots the pursuit ships from the planet. And he also actually gets some genuine characterisation, as we were discussing earlier. So this is actually probably Gan's best episode for quite a while. I think so. And indeed, it does, spoilers, but it does set up, he makes the point about his limiter and that it's obviously starting to affect him, perhaps. Yes, and it's interesting that... Cinefar and Jirok appear to him first. Mm. Now, if they are people who are attracted in the literal sense of the word to violence, mm. does that say something about Gan's personality? Yes. Dot, dot, dot. Again, we mentioned the fact that he shows his devotion and faith in Blake. He is very frustrated that he can't get out there and help. So, yeah, this is actually a good Gan episode. Yeah, it is. Our second lighthearted segment... What cool lines did Chris Boucher give Avon this week? And it's really quite a good episode for Avon. Yeah, they've now sort of got through the pressure of the initial episodes, and I think we're now starting to see the, these really good lines. Paul Darrow does make the point that when he used to get each script, he actually used to sit there and look through for the lines that he knew from his favourite movies. <laughs> uh, one that I presume wasn't from a Western, though, is a really nice one where Villa's been baiting him and makes a couple of disparaging comments, to which Avon replies... He was calling me a machine, but since he undoubtedly defines himself as a human being, I'll choose to accept that as a compliment. <laughs> the one I actually I really liked is a bit where Blake is down initially talking to Cinefar and Girok, and he says, my people are with me by their own choice. And you come back to David and say, really? <laughs> uh, he also gets the lovely logic says we're dead during the space battle. Yeah, well, Blake actually probably gets the better comeback there, which is logic has never explained what dead means. Uh, yes, and we've already mentioned his comment about throwing nuts at one another. Yes. And, of course, his famous... About him not understanding why you should become irrational in order to prove that you care. But that brings us once again to our Player of the Week. Now, Indeed. generally speaking, Richard, if it's my episode to go through, we let you say who it is first. But can we just assume this has been building undramatically to the very obvious pick by both of us? Yes, I think so. Uh, Douglas Camfield? Indeed. Yes. So Douglas Camfield... Obviously, this is his only Blake 7 story that he works on. Yes. And look, we've both picked him to be the player of the week because of his excellent direction here. So it's worth just taking a couple of moments to mention a couple of points. He is almost universally acknowledged by Doctor Who fans as Mm -hmm. within the classic series of Doctor Who, the best director. Yes. He has some absolute belters to his name. Stuff like Terror of the Zygons, The Front Heart of Inferno, Seeds of Doom... Uh, Web of Fear. Yes, and didn't that go up in people's estimations when they saw it? Yeah. But particularly that battle scene in part four. But again, he has this stuff, his use of battle scenes and Mm. combat and action, he is known for. In fact, there was one comment where he was having a few drinks with Doctor Who script editor Terence Dix and said, you know, I'm very disappointed in my career in some ways because I want to be known as this wonderful, big, dramatic director. And Terence Dix said to him, being known as the best action director actually isn't a bad thing. No. But that sort of shows his mentality. We also need to mention as well the fact that Dudley Simpson isn't on this episode. Indeed. And it is a directorial choice, but there's a lot of myths and legends out there about why. Mm. The sort of fan myth, or whatever you want to call it, is that they had a bit of a a feud and that Douglas Canfield refused to work with him. Yes, and one of the variations on that was that at one point when they worked together on the Doctor Who story Planet of Giants... Camfield found out how much Dudley Simpson was actually paid to do music yes. and thought it was actually quite obscene and refused to ever hire him again. That, I believe, isn't true. No, I think that's largely been debunked. I think the feeling seems to be, and there are sources you can look at online that do break this down, including actually on the, um, we haven't given them a shout for a while, the Making Blake 7 Twitter feed. Unfortunately, I think their posts on it have just recently been archived, so because uh, they do have a bit of a three-month limit on theirs, I think. Yeah. But... Dudley Simpson certainly seems to have felt that Douglas Camfield didn't like him and didn't want to use him, but that doesn't actually seem to have been the case. 
Douglas Canfield, because he was a freelancer a lot of the time, quite often didn't get to pick the music. And he does work with Dudley Simpson a couple of times prior to this. Mm. Um, they were on an episode of, of Target. I mean, the, the common thing there is that they were actually forced to work together. There was another couple of instances, I think, where they, he did use Dudley Simpson. But I think in the case of Douglas Canfield, quite often he would use stock music because it was a cost thing. Because, of course, you had to pay the musicians to come in and create the thing and of course if you had more musicians because you wanted an elaborate suite of music that meant more money if the musicians played more than one instrument that meant they had to be paid even more so it could be a bit of a a money sink yeah and you can certainly see that as being a reasonable explanation here because although there's a small amount of stock music and it's very effective you can kind of see where a bit of extra money has been used for example on the outdoor footage outdoor filming was quite expensive at this point so Camfield milks that for all it is worth. Mm. And as I say, there's some brilliant stuff there. They don't just go to Planet Quarry. They go to a forest. It's brilliantly shot. The space battle's brilliantly shot. Look, and I guess this sort of brings us back to our summary of the episode. It's a really, really good episode. It's got a really good reputation. I do think a lot of that comes from the direction more than the script. Mm. But I don't really care where it comes from. It's great to watch. Again, I think this is a very strong episode. It's one of the better ones, I think, in season one. And no, I had a lot of fun watching it for this. So we're going to be continuing in our next episode with what I think is a very good continuation of this. Yes, it is. I think this next one is a very good episode as well. It is, and that is, of course, Project Avalon. So I've been Dave. I've been Richard. Set course for the planet of the Subterrons. Thank you for listening to Spacefall, a Blake 7 podcast, recorded in Australia by David Kitchen and Richard Nolan. If you enjoy our chat, please subscribe and leave a review. We can be contacted by email via spacefallpc at gmail.com. We can also be found online at facebook.com slash spacefallpc and on Twitter at spacefallpc. Richard and Dave also co-host the Goodies Pirate podcast, and Dave co-hosts the Doctor Who show podcast, on which Richard also appears from time to time. We'll be back in a fortnight with more Blake 7. I think it is. I don't imagine that it is a recreational aid.